Zeke, how are we doing this weekend? Hey, well, it is good to be with you, whether you're joining us online, out on the patio, or here in the worship center, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I'm excited to go ahead and jump into our time of teaching. So like Johnny said, I would encourage you, get your note sheets and Bible ready. If you're watching online, you can download them from the platform you're watching on. I'm going to pray, and we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Let's pray. Jesus, we've gathered this weekend because we want to know more of who you really are. There are a lot of voices that are trying to tell us who you are. There's the voice of our culture. There's the voice sometimes of our pain and our hurts. There's the voice of our hopes and dreams. And while at times those might even be good things, we want to go back to you and your voice to tell us clearly who you really are. I think of the Apostle Paul when he prayed over the Ephesian church. May the eyes of their hearts be open, and that's our prayer this weekend too. May our hearts be open to more of who you truly are. And once we see who you truly are, we experience the transformation that comes from the one and only King. And so as I often pray, I pray that as a communicator, I would become much, much less this weekend. And I pray that you, King Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that you would become much, much more. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen. Well, Rocky Peak, this weekend, we're gonna be continuing the series we've been in for the last several months now called Signs, the Path to Life. And what we've been doing in the series is it's really been an in-depth study in the life and teachings of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers, one of his closest friends, one of the original disciples, a man that we now call the Apostle John. And so what John is doing is he's writing his gospel at the end of his life as an old man. And he's looking back on his experiences with Jesus. And through his gospel, he's inviting you and I today to go on a journey with him. And in particular, John's gospel highlights these seven supernatural signs that combined with all of his writing are meant to show us clearly who Jesus is, the purpose for which Jesus came, and the path to life that Jesus leads each of us on. And so today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going to chapter 6, and in chapter 6, we're going to be tackling the fourth out of these seven signs, a very, com a very familiar sign commonly called the feeding of the 5,000. Now, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only sign that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. And what we're going to see in our time together is that when we are faced with a seemingly impossible situation, that that is an opportunity to not only reveal the true depths of the power of Jesus, but it's also an opportunity to root ourselves in a deeper trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And so I'm excited to jump in. And so if you've got your note sheet, you've got a section titled An Unexpected Solution got your Bibles, open them up. You've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in John's gospel, and we're going to be starting right at verse 1. And I hope you're ready to do some marking up or highlighting in this. So starting at verse 1. 
Sometime after this, so we're transitioning from the previous events, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. It had been officially renamed at the time that John was writing. And a great crowd, would you underline or highlight that great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival, would you underline that? Passover festival was near. And so let's stop right here because there's some key context that we need to unpack. And so What John is doing is John is giving us some geographical context as well as some chronological context. By letting us know that Passover was near, he's putting us in the spring, so to speak. Now, this is the second Passover that John's gospel notes. He did it once before in chapter two, and he's gonna do it again before the death of Jesus. Now, I want you to make a note of Passover. We're gonna come back to that later because that is key to understanding this. But in particular, I wanna unpack what's meant by by a great crowd. And so I mentioned that a lot of us know this miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. But what we need to understand is that that number only represents the men that was in the crowd. If you begin to then add the women and the children, many scholars would estimate that the crowd was likely at least, if not exceeded, 20,000 people. And so to put that in visual context, if you've ever been to the Staples Center in downtown Los Angeles, at their very max capacity, they may be able to hold 20,000 people. And so try to picture an entire Staples Center, if not more, of people that are coming to follow Jesus. Now we're told why they're coming to follow Jesus is because in Galilee, this region called the Galilee, Jesus has gone viral. Because of his signs and wonders, because of the miracles that he's done. In Mark's gospel, we see that he had taken his disciples, empowered them to go and do the same in his name. Everybody's talking about Jesus. So now the Staples Center is here. But again, there's a diversity in why they're there. There are some people there that I assume are there because they want to believe that this is the Messiah. There are likely a lot of people here that it's not so much because they think he's the Messiah, but because they need a miracle. They're dealing with something and they need somebody to help and somebody to heal. There's likely also a contingent, we've seen this in other of Jesus' miracles, of people there to oppose him. So again, there's a lot of diversity going on in this situation. And so with that, let's continue. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, quick note, this was not the plan to teach to this crowd. This was not a scheduled event. They found him. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, one of the disciples, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Verse six, he asked this only to test him. Would you underline or highlight that phrase, to test him? for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. 
But how far will they go among so many? Would you underline or highlight that last phrase? But how far will they go amongst so many? Okay, this got awesome. Try to emotionally put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, specifically Philip and Andrew here. So Jesus sees this unplanned, unexpected staple center of a crowd coming towards them. And Jesus feels a fatherly responsibility to provide for their needs in terms of, e- in terms of them eating. So imagine Jesus turns to you and asks the question, what do you think we should do? How would you feel? How do you think would you, you would respond? Do you think your stomach would drop in that situation? And I think what's interesting is John, looking back, gives us an editorial comment through that phrase to test him. He doesn't ask, he doesn't ask Philip what to do because Jesus doesn't know what to do. He has a different purpose, but we got to focus in on that because let's be honest, and this is church, we want to be honest in this place. When you read that Jesus did this to test him, does that make you uncomfortable? Because we see this in other places in the Bible too. That God will intentionally allow us to experience some incredible challenges and circumstances for the purpose of testing us. And again, does that make you uncomfortable? Why would God do that? And so to really understand what God is up to, we need to be led by the apostle to gain a bigger understanding of what it means to be tested. Because our tendency is to think of testing in a pass and fail grading scale. That we think that the reason God tests us is either to show whether we are mature, a good Christ follower, or not pass or fail, but that is not God's heart behind testing. God has not minimized the difficulty of these tests we face, but testing from a biblical standpoint is an opportunity because testing is an opportunity to provide a place of growth because testing is not meant to show pass or fail, but testing is a revelation of truth. What a test does is that it provides, shows you what you really believe about Jesus. And what I mean by that is what you believe about Jesus in times of peace, in times of calm, in times that are not challenging, may not be the same things you believe about Jesus under significant stress and challenge in conflict and trial. And you may not even realize that. And so there are times in which the Lord will allow us to experience these tests so that he can reveal our true starting point, not for us to live in a place of shame. But as we talk about, one of our values at Rocky Peak is radical authenticity. Christ followers, we can't grow if we don't know where we're actually starting from. And God in his grace will allow us to experience tests so that we know the truth about ourselves and through which we can embrace an opportunity to grow. But again, it doesn't mean that these tests aren't challenging. Again, how would you feel if that was you? And the truth is, this is far more relatable than you may realize, right? Because how do you feel when you face the impossible in your life? 
How do you feel when you face what seems unsurmountable, unbeatable? Many of you came into this space or you're watching online facing one, if not multiple great crowds, so to speak, and are wondering, what am I gonna do? See, when we face the seemingly impossible, we feel a pressure, don't we? We feel the pain, we feel the suffering, but we also feel a pressure to try to find the solution. And so what do we see the disciples do? Well, Philip, he starts doing the math. Philip starts adding up. Oh my gosh, like, do you know how many people are here? If we all went to the local drive-thru and if we all ordered, Jesus, we can't even dream to have the money. What is he doing? He's trying to solve an impossible problem in a way that makes sense to him. And in that, that brings up one of the other difficulties of our times of challenge, right? It reveals the truth of how limited we are. We often find ourselves trying to, trying to solve challenges that are beyond us in ways that make sense to us. And so Philip is doing the math. What does Andrew do? He brings a kid's happy meal to the situation. Now, I don't know if this kid volunteered or if he was volunteered. But right now you can feel the emotion that this is all they've got. What are we seeing through this? They're desperate. They are desperate for any type of solution. And the kids' lunch, the description of these barley loaves and these fish, this was the lunch of the poor. Again, this is a reflection of this great crowd that by living in the region of Galilee, these were a people that financially were suffering. These were a people that had been under Rome's oppression. There was not gonna be somebody in this crowd that would step up and go, you know what? I'm rich. I have resources. I could help. This kid's lunch was a reflection that they were ludicrously outclassed by this crisis. But one thing I wanna note before we move on is in the face of an impossible situation. Where is Jesus? He's there. He's right there with them. And they are panicking, right? But what is Jesus doing? He's calm. He's at peace. And with that, let's continue. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. In Mark's gospel, we know that he did this orderly, that he sat them down in groups of 100 or 50. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, which was likely a prayer thanking God the Father for providing abundant life and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, had all, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets. Would you underline or highlight that? 12 baskets. With the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. What does Jesus do? in the face of the impossible, he defies it. What does Jesus bring in to this impossible situation? 
Jesus brings in something you and I never could. He brings in a greater power than the impossible facing them. He brings in order to this chaos that's facing them. He brings a greater purpose because what does this power reflect about who Jesus is? I think what's beautiful about this sign is I had you underline these, they filled 12 baskets. This is a likely strong connection to the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. What are we seeing about Jesus through this sign is that over and over again in the Old Testament, God the Father provides and stepped up and dealt with the impossible situations his people faced. And as God had done, Jesus continues to do for each and every one of us now. And so Jesus very calmly does the impossible. And so as we move on to the next verses, I want you to have this foundation that what we're gonna see is their reaction to this. And what we're gonna see is two very paradoxical things. That one, they are gonna respond in a significantly beautiful way. And at the same time, they're gonna respond in a significantly dangerous way. And so as we continue, verse 14. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely, this is the prophet. Would you underline or highlight that? Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. Would you underline that phrase? King by force. Withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And so this great crowd was a Jewish crowd. And as they witness the sign, as they witness their miracle, they are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament. And their minds are making connections between what they have witnessed and what the scriptures had been teaching them their entire life. They are making this connection because Passover is coming up. And Passover is the celebration, the commemoration of when God provided for his people by leading them out of the bondage in Egypt. With that, their minds are connecting to the fact that while the Israelites were in the wilderness, there were times when God miraculously provided food that they didn't have, when God miraculously provided water that they didn't have. There are those in the crowd that are connecting this to the prophet Elisha, who in 2 Kings 4, he miraculously fed a hundred with 20 loaves. What they are connecting is that again, over and over, God's people face the impossible and God would send someone to defy the impossible. And that is beautiful, Rocky Peak. See, let me do a quick sidebar that sometimes in the modern church, we get confused or don't understand the place of the Old Testament in our teachings. And again, this is a reminder that to truly understand, to truly gain a big view, to see the beauty of Jesus and what he established to be the church, to see it in a full way requires the beauty of the Old Testament. The entirety of the Bible matters. And they talked about the prophet and this is coming straight from Moses in Deuteronomy 18. See, Moses was often viewed as the greatest prophet in Israel's history. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that one day there would be another after me. 
One day there would be a greater prophet to lead you forward as God designs it. And they are connecting the dots going, did we just witness it? Is that him? Is that Jesus from Nazareth? And that is absolutely beautiful. And then what do they immediately do? This might be God's Messiah. Let's tell him what he's going to do. This might be God's Messiah. We just witnessed great power. Now let us as human beings control that power. Now again, as I say often, it can be easy initially to be judgy and be like, come on, what are you doing? Think about what you just saw. But then as I think about that crowd, I realize, no, that actually reflects the state of my heart. Because again, they were a people that were suffering. They were a people that were hurting. They were a people that had lost the fight in their culture. They were a people that were being oppressed. And we can relate to pain and suffering. And because we can relate, we all know full well, Rocky Peak, that there is a temptation in our pain to stop asking God, what do you want to do? And instead to declare, God, this is what you will do. And it's not because the Lord is unfeeling to our pain. We know through the beauty of the cross that he has not only acknowledged our pain, but he has felt our suffering. But what we see by Jesus withdrawing is not an act of aggression, but an act of grace. Because what he's teaching us is I hear your pain, I hear your cries, but your solution is too small. And I want to do something bigger. If Jesus had given them what they wanted, they would have missed out on what the cross would have bought them. If Jesus had given them an earthly kingdom like they demanded, then they would have missed out on the eternal kingdom that Jesus came to establish. And again, we feel that wrestling, don't we? Because when we are hurt, when we are angry, when we are sad, we want to take Jesus and control him. We want to take Jesus and weaponize him. But again, Jesus is pulling back. He withdraws, not because he's uncaring, but because he's going, trust me, because I see something bigger and there is a greater good. Rather than giving you your immediate desire, I'm going to empower you to endure so that together we can tackle a bigger impossible. And so that's our passage, Rocky Peak. And as I often do, I want to encourage you, would you please take me up on this? Would you sometime in the next 24 hours just carve out some unrushed time and just sit with this passage? In fact, on your note sheet, I also indicated there the other, where this pops up in the other gospels, there are certain things that I barely scratched the surface on. And like we talked about, when Michael talked about last week, that we want to give our hearts the opportunity for God to show us insight. But as we continue with the time that we have left, what I want to do is these signs reveal the truth about Jesus the Messiah. And I want to specifically unpack one truth, but in two parts. And so as you continue in your note sheet, your first fill-in is this. Jesus defies the impossible. Jesus defies the impossible. 
And again, the purpose of these signs is to root us in who Jesus is. And Jesus is all powerful, meaning that when Jesus wins, he doesn't squeak by in overtime at the buzzer. But when Jesus wins, just like there was so much left over, his victory is absolute. And when we face significant trials and suffering, when we face the impossible, it reveals our limitations. And something that we've talked about being a very real limitation in the past is the fact that our vision gets locked. And so when we're faced with crises, when we're faced with challenges, when we're faced with the seemingly impossible, it could be easy to become locked and transfixed and not see anything past it. And Jesus is not asking us to ignore. Jesus is not asking us to minimize. But what we see through this sign is Jesus is saying, hey, turn your head. See who's standing right next to you. I'm here. I'm not panicking. I've got this. Remember who is with you. There in your note sheet, A.W. Tozer is an old school pastor, an incredible writer, and he writes this. God possesses what no creature can, an incomprehensible platitude of power, a potency that is absolute. Since he has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite way, being that is a beautifully fancy way of saying while you and I are limited, Jesus is not. The great crowd that is approaching us is absolutely impossible for us. He doesn't even break a sweat. And as we talk about this, I'm sure that all of us here are reflecting on what our crowd is, are reflecting on the impossible. And for us, it's multiple seemingly impossible situations. We collectively face the impossible of things going on in our world and in our globe. We face the seemingly impossible when we look at the state of our nation, the state of our state, the state of our culture. And in addition to that, many of us are facing numerous seemingly impossible situations in our lives, whether it's a financial impossibility, whether it's a type of resource provision, whether it's a health impossibility, physical or mental health with sadness, depression, or anger in bitterness. For many of us, the impossible we're facing is a relational impossible, maybe broken relationships with former deep friends or families, parenting challenges, or relationships with old former Christian mentors or our church. For some of us, it's the impossibility of our energy coming out of these last 13, 14 months. We just feel exhausted like we have nothing else to give. For some of us, the impossible is our habitual sin, that addiction that we haven't been able to turn the corner in, we haven't been able to overcome. And so whatever it might be, when we look at it, it can seem overwhelming because it's overwhelming. But what we see from John's gospel is Christ follower, turn your head and see who is standing right next to you. See who is not panicking and remember that the God almighty is with you. And so John will go on to write the letter of revelation that closes our Bible. And I like how it's put in the NASB translation there in your note sheet. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude 
and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah. Just quick pause. Can you imagine worship so loud that it sounds like thunder bombs going off? And why are they worshiping that loud? Well, he continues, for the Lord our God, the Almighty. It's, I love this translation because of how they write, refer to that. The Almighty reigns. Christ follower, do not ignore nor minimize the great crowd before you, but turn your head and see that the Almighty is with you and the Almighty reigns. Amen? So that's the first part. And that has to be our foundation going into the second part. So your second fill-in, Jesus defies the impossible in completely unexpected ways. Jesus defies the impossible in completely unexpected ways. And again, let's be honest and let me model that myself. This is what I often find to be the biggest test. This is what I often find to be the biggest challenge when it comes to trusting Jesus when facing the seemingly impossible. Because I don't know about you, but it sure would be nice if every once in a while, Jesus acted in a way that made sense to me. It sure would be nice if every once in a while, Jesus moved forward using the predetermined plan that we had agreed on. If Jesus would stick to the script. But the truth is, you don't have to be walking with the Lord long to encounter the truth that while Jesus is always at work, often he is at work in a way outside what we would expect or even understand. And that can create tension. There are many of you here that have been praying and pleading and asking for the Lord for provision in your life. And you've experienced that his response is slow or he tells you to wait. There have been many of you that have gone before the Lord and asked him to provide whether a practical thing or an emotional thing or a solution and he does not. There are many of you that have gone before the Lord and have asked him to step into the suffering and yet as you continue forward, it seems like the quote bad guys continually are winning. And so what do we do? Well, this test is an opportunity to root ourselves in something greater. See, God's epic vision for each one of our lives is not for our faith to be rooted in a practical solution because solutions come, solutions go, circumstances change, but God's epic vision for our lives is to root our hearts, to root our faith, to root ourselves in the only thing that is eternal, which is the character of Jesus himself. We are being called to root ourselves in a person, not in a solution because it is the person of care, the Jesus that will endure. See, many times the Lord, he will not tell us what's coming because he knows we can't handle it or we wouldn't understand. But he will always remind us, but trust me because I'm here and I'm for you. You know, near the beginning of the pandemic, which feels like 50 years ago now, 
I remember teaching a message out of the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a really powerful short book in the Old Testament that in the very first chapter, the prophet Habakkuk goes before the Lord and he's angry. He's fired up. He doesn't understand. God, our nation has abandoned you. God, our nation has chosen evil instead of good. And they call what, is, what was good now evil. God, people are not following your ways. And so why aren't you doing anything about it? You need to intervene. And God's response to Habakkuk is, it's going to get worse. But he continues, and I'm paraphrasing, because Habakkuk, I am going to do something even greater than you can imagine. But if I told you that now, your head would explode. You wouldn't understand. So I'm asking you to look to me. And that's very parental, isn't it? Because when you're, if you're a parent, you know full well that oftentimes the roots of arguments with your kids is that you see something that they don't. Regardless of how old your kids are, if you're a parent, you argue with your kids. And usually that's the core of it. They desire something, but you see a bigger picture. And that leads to conflict and tension. You know, it makes me think of a specific time with my daughter. She's seven now, but I remember when she was about three or four, I want to say, we were driving down LA Avenue in Simi Valley, and I remember it so vividly in my head. I was doing what I usually do. I was playing and singing along to music in the car. It was just the two of us. I was playing One Day More by the Les Mis soundtrack, getting my Jean Valjean on. And, and my daughter very strongly goes, Daddy, turn right. And it kind of caught me off guard. And I kind of just look, be look behind me over my shoulder safely. And I go, no, that's not where we're going. And then again, very strongly, no, daddy, turn right. And now we're in an argument. <laughs> because again, I look over, I'm like, sweetheart, no, that's not where we're going. And she would not back down. Daddy, turn right. I'm trying to show her the evidence. There's not a road. There's a train track. That is the opposite direction, but she would not let go. And then finally, I just had to tell her, sweetheart, I know you feel strongly, but you need to trust that I know what I'm doing. You need to trust that I see something that you don't. But I realized something about being a parent in that moment, that telling her that I can see what she can't, asking her to trust me, this one time is not enough that it was, gonna need, it was going to be a journey. Christ follower, the Lord telling us once is not gonna be enough in our hearts. We need continually to be reminded that he knows what he do, he's doing. He's seeing what we don't see. And a beautiful part of that is that Jesus invites you to be radically honest with him. Jesus invites you to go before him and yell, plead, ask, cry, shake your fist, awkward silence. To be honest with him about what it is that you're facing because it's when we wrestle in honesty is when we can hear the voice of Jesus in a deeper way say, hey, I see something bigger. And I'm with you in this. We're reminded that he's not like we are 
And that is a good, good thing. There in your note sheet, out of the prophet Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it blood and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So it is my word that goes out from your mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose of which I sent it, which is a greater, greater, greater good. When the nation of Israel was being led out of Egypt, they had seen some wonderfully supernatural and miraculous things, had they not? And then they reached the shores of the Red Sea and they heard that the Egyptians were on their tail and they thought they were going to die. Why? Because nowhere in the limited view did they even fathom the thought that God would part the waters to take them in. So what did the Lord do? Through the impossible, he revealed a greater power and a greater good. When the early church was enduring a horrific and bloody persecution, and one of the key peoples leading that persecution was a man named Saul. You better believe that the early church was praying for an end to that. You better believe that they are praying for a solution to this problem that was now called Saul. Do you think any of them would have ever fathomed in their limited thought that God would solve the problem by turning their greatest enemy into one of their most trusted allies? How awkward was that first church service when Saul walked in? And what did God show? A greater power and good that comes from forgiveness and grace. As Israel cried out, as we often do, to be released from this oppression of their culture, from this oppression of Rome, for a kingdom to just topple the local government and just restore our right to live, what does Jesus do? He comes and dies. And he doesn't free them from Rome. He frees them from sin. He frees them from the devil. He frees them to hell. He shows his greater power for an eternal good. And so with that, as we wrap things up, I want to ask you one last question to reflect on. There on the back of your note sheet, and it's this. Am I trusting Jesus with the impossible? Am I trusting Jesus with the impossible? And so a little context, Rocky Peak, is the work of God in your life does not begin and end in this room. See, what we do when we gather on the weekends is meant to be a catalyst. What you experience here through teaching, through worship, what we experience in our small groups throughout the week is meant to be a catalyst for you to then go and one-on-one go before the Lord because it is in that one-on-one setting in which you will experience the reality of Jesus the King in a deeper way. And so I'm asking you to take me up on this. And what I'm asking you to do is go before the Lord in prayer. And in that, as you reflect on this question, you know what your impossible is. As you reflect on that question, I want you to do two things. The first is I want you to talk. 
I want you to tell Jesus what's going on. I want you to ask for what you want. I want you to plead. I want you to yell. I want you to cry. I want you to sit there in uncomfortable silence. I want you to do a combination of all of that. But be honest because your father loves you and doesn't want anything but honesty from you. Unpolished, unfiltered, go for it. And then... I want you to listen. Jesus, you've heard what I want. Now, what do you want to do? And for some of us, the Lord may lead to certain steps. For many of us, the Lord's response won't be a step, but a reminder, hey, I'm with you. I'm in front of you. We are going to do this together. And again, if you take me up on this and spend this time with the Lord, it's gonna make this last scripture on your note sheets really come to life. From Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you're here. We want to thank you that you're not distant. We want to thank you, but as we stand facing a great crowd, the seemingly impossible coming towards us, that you are right at our side, you are in our hearts. We want to thank you that when I panic, when we are panicking, you are not. You are calm, you are cool, you are collective, and you see a bigger picture than I don't. Jesus, we want to thank you that because of your power, because of your bigness, you invite us to come to you as we are, that you invite us to approach you raw and unfiltered, that you invite us to say, to yell, to cry, to be authentic before you, and you don't judge us for it, but instead you allow us to get that out because it's then only in radical authenticity and radical honesty in which we can hear your voice in a clear and a deep way. And so Jesus, as a church, we commit to being with you, not just in this room, but one-on-one, -on -one, to being intentional, that if we want to see, if we want to see the impossible be overcome, it starts by being with you and our hearts being transformed. And so Jesus, again, we thank you for your truth and your word. We thank you that you have not abandoned us, but you've entered into the dirt and the muck with us. And we thank you that we can turn our head, see you, and you as our beautiful Jesus can say, hey, look to me, I've got this. And it's in your name that we all said, amen.